You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. I be rolling on the river with my buddy through the night. Puffins on the run. On the M I double S I double S I P P I. Puffins on the run. I be rolling on the river with my buddy through the night. Puffins on the run. On the M I double S I double S I P P I. Uncivilized? What? That's what everybody called me. Slave owning hypocrites. We be safe here, probably. That's when they drag Jim and me. Hello and welcome to Oh No Lit Class. The podcast that really wishes J.K. Rowling would stop tweeting. Please, Joe, for all of us, each new thing you say about Harry Potter just makes everything worse. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And holy shit, you guys, we are super hyped to introduce our guest, who is... Hi, I'm MC Lars. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So, MC Lars... I thought it was Mick Lars. Yeah, Mick Lars, <laughs> Mick Lars is the, uh, the creator of post-punk laptop rap and lit hop according to your website, (laughs) (laughs) and founder of indie record label Horus Records, and he has his own podcast called the MC Lars Podcast, and most importantly, you're definitely smarter than both of us. (laughs) No, stop it. (laughs) No, I know that's true, because the the reason that we reached out to you and are are really excited you're here is that it was recently that I discovered all of your very cool literary rap songs, and if you guys haven't checked them out, you absolutely should should because they cover everything from Edgar Allan Poe, Moby Dick, Hamlet, and a, a song that explains the structure of Shakespearean sonnets. And that's how I know you're smarter than us. <laughs> um, I, I appreciate you checking out. And I like y'all with your podcast, I always want to make my music an entry point to make literature fun, you know, so we have that in common. So it's just, I think passion more than intelligence drives our work, maybe. Yeah, there we go. I'll take that. <laughs> that makes you feel better. Acceptable. <laughs> But yeah, you're not here today to talk about Shakespeare. What are uh, what are you here to talk about? I think we're talking about the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Mark Twain's uh, reluctant opus. Yeah, that sounds about right. Reluctant opus. He wasn't super jazzed that that was like his biggest book. You know, Mark Twain was faulted for having bad taste in his own work. He thought, I think Tom Sawyer and the Indians was like his favorite book. And so he felt like Huck Finn was kind of just like a throwaway fun exercise. He never thought it would become a candidate for the great American novel. So it's interesting how we've really canonized and, and lauded this work, but it's it wasn't what he expected people to like. He didn't really, he wasn't very prescient, you know, in that way. Yeah, no, that's wild because, like, Tom Sawyer is fine. You know, it's great. I, I remember way more of, like, the 1994 movie with Jonathan Taylor Thomas than that book. But uh, Huckleberry Finn, yeah, it goes way harder uh, in terms of, like, satire and just scorched earthing, like, <laughs> the the southern antebellum uh, attitudes and things like that. So, I mean, I feel like he kind of had, like, way more of an, an agenda there an axe to grind and obviously it's a lot more controversial and we're going to be covering that we're going to be going into that we're going to be three white people talking about the <laughs> racial issues and huckleberry Finn. <laughs> just what just what the world needs hey <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna do our best so yeah huckleberry finn is widely considered uh one of the great american novels that we get to and our last two episodes were on, on Greek myths and Beowulf, so this this feels downright contemporary. <laughs> so, RJ, we'll, uh, we'll start with you. You're usually the fastest here. Did you have to read Huck Finn in school? 
Did I have to? I don't think I had to, but I did read Huck then. Oh, okay. You read it just for, for funsies? And, and Tom Sawyer, yes. That's a big deal for you. <laughs> I read something. Yay! Did it leave, like, a strong impression on you? No. <laughs> I enjoyed it enough. <laughs> I just uh, can't really relate to those old lazy days out there on the Mississippi. <laughs> what? Just, just rafting down the river and, and tricking kids into painting fences and stuff no good hoodlums <laughs> okay so Lars what was your experience with the adventures of Huckleberry Finn in school if if at all you know it's one of those cultural moments where it's the example of the sequel being better than the original you know like Terminator 2 is another example of that right like um yes it's 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 I remember I think I read it in either in senior year in high school or for in college I forget which but I read it you know recreationally probably in middle school and you don't get any of the the whole thing about like the the uh, morality and relative morality and like Rousseauian themes of like society's responsibilities to people and the protection of rights and you don't get all that until you're older. It's a fun adventure novel about t- two friends. And when I first read it, you know, I loved the adventure element and. I love how Huck was kind of like the Bart Simpson of 19th century literature. And the other interesting thing is how it was written, I think, what, like 30 or 40 years after it's supposed to have taken place. But we don't really think about that. It's not contemporary. Like he wrote it, you know, it's like if we were to write a book about the 70s now, right? It's that kind of thing. Right. So that that's cool. I didn't realize that till recently. But when I first read it, I, I felt like it was just a cool adventure story. And then the layers came through when I studied the, when I knew more about history and the civil war and slavery and all that, like that was, that made me appreciate it more. It's very funny. There's a lot of great humor in it that I appreciate as a kid. Yeah, no, it's, de- it's definitely funny. That's cause that's what I like about Mark Twain. The stuff that I have read way more of him is his like nonfiction stuff and like the columns that he used to write and like the travelogues. And he just, he just hates everyone around <laughs> him so much. <laughs> He's just constantly just being like, look, look what I have to live with. Look who I got to surround myself with. And it's just really funny. I also did not get assigned Huckleberry Finn. And I read it on my own. I think in either ninth or 10th grade that it was just in my high school library. And I read it because of the, the notice on the first page. When I read it, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm intrigued. And we're we're going to talk about that, but before we talk about the book, we got to talk about Mr. Mr. Thomas Jefferson Snodgrass himself, one of his many delightful aliases. Uh, RJ, you want to take us away? So Samuel Langhorn Clements, no relation to Roger, and better known as Mark Twain, no relation to Shania, was born November 30th, 1835, and died April 21st, 1910. It seems his old, old smarks squoze in just one last 420 before deciding to hotbox it up in heaven with whatever entity you believe in. Yep, Mark, Mark Twain just uh, blazing it yeah. up there at the In his white suit. Yeah, yeah. That's how you know he was a real baller. Old Smarky Smark was born in Florida. Smarky Smark. Yeah, he was born in Florida, Missouri. Yeah, this is not like some weird geography question. There was indeed a Florida, Missouri. Was is the operative word here as the place no longer exists. What? Yeah, one Florida's enough. <laughs> and we don't want to get the uh location of florida man confused however i guess you could say smark was the original florida man as he was born before florida was a state and really if anyone would have loved the identity of florida man and how we use it in 2019 it would be smart 
This is true. So, so wait, there was a Florida city before there was a Florida state. Yep. Florida, Missouri. Ha. Huh. And it became Hannibal? Is Was that what Hannibal was called? He moved to Hannibal. Okay. Because actually Florida, Missouri came back from the dead and now it's disappeared again. <laughs> what the hell? It's like this like little village that people moved out. There was a population of zero, but then there was like six people who moved back. <laughs> So the population was six. So even when Florida is not in Florida, it doesn't make any goddamn sense. No. <laughs> so he was the sixth of seven children. Only three of his siblings actually survived childhood. One sibling who passed was named Pleasant Hannibal. Which, when comparing that to the names we've come across on, on this voyage known as Ono Liquas, well, Pleasant Hannibal is up there. I mean, it's no uh, Gassenvort, but yeah. what are you going to do? He might eat you, but... He will whine and dine you and ask you how your day was first. He's going to be real chill about it. When uh, Smark turned four, he technically outgrew his four to madness as him and the Twain clan moved to, well, how about that? Hannibal, Missouri. So they named the kid after the place before they even moved there? A whole town of them. <laughs> so this town is actually what inspired the town of St. Petersburg in both Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. Mr. Twain, John Marshall Clemens, was an attorney and judge who died when uh, Smark was 11. This left Smark and Co. to be raised by their widowed mother, Jane Lampton Clements, who was a homemaker. Obviously, this meant the family did not live a life of luxury. And in fact, within a year of his father dying, Smark left school at the hard age of 11, a fifth grade dropout, to join the school of hard knocks and became a printer's apprentice with the Hannibal Journal. It's time to be a man. <laughs> Generally, he worked as a typesetter, which if you know anything about the job, is far from glamorous. Maybe he's born with it. Maybe it's hours of grinding it out in a hundred degree air covered in oil and ink. Spoiler. It's definitely the latter. So he stuck with the Hannibal Press until he was 18. He never did return to school as his career progressed. He did get to contribute to articles, at least here and there to start. But then, like most Ono class alumnus, when the biological clock hit 18, he undertook the journey that most seemed to take, and that was in new york city because you're not you're not a real writer unless apparently unless you just go dick around in new york for an extended period of time that's what we've learned on this show <laughs> everyone goes to new york at some point so in new york he worked as a printer he actually did tour around the u.s he didn't spend all his time in new york he did spend some time in philadelphia cincinnati and went back to the midwest to st louis he did want to get an education, even if it wasn't through school. And so he spent a lot of free time in public libraries, educating himself on whatever he wanted to know. On top of the printing gigs, he took up piloting boats. And that is the terminology they used back then. He became a steamboat, a steamboat a ste pilot. A steamboat pilot. <laughs> a steamboat pilot apprentice. The technical term for that is, no joke, cub pilot. Um. He's a cub pilot. He's a cub pilot. Yeah, I presume this has meant that the main steamboat pilot was either Daddy Pilot or Daddy Bear Pilot. <laughs> Twink Pilot. Yeah. Smarky wrote of being a steamboat pilot, quote, He must get up a warm personal acquaintance with every old snag and one-limbed cottonwood and every obscure woodpile that ornaments the banks of this river for 1,200 miles. And more than that, must actually know where the things are in the dark. And being a steamboat pilot paid handsomely. As an apprentice, he was paid what would today be about $15,000. After two years okay. of apprenticing, he earned his license. It was during this time of piloting that he picked up what would become his pen name, Mark Twain. 
As steamboats made their way through the water, it was important to know how deep the water was, as not to run aground and damage the boat. The men measuring the depths would yell out the relevant measurements. They would measure in uh, fathoms, and the important depth was two fathoms or more, which is 12 feet. And so when there was more than 12 feet of water, the men would yell out two fathoms. But instead of using the word two, they would use the word twain. And so they would yell out, Mark Twain, the man who was 12 feet deep. (laughs) There is no fun story uh, surrounding how he decided on his other pen name, which Megan already alluded to. Which I I just ruined. Thomas Jefferson Snodgrass. Thomas Jefferson Snodgrass, which he used for his more humorous pieces. So he stuck with piloting and would make his way up and down the Mississippi River until the Civil War broke out in 1861, when he was 26. Traffic along the Mississippi all but seized, so he could no longer pilot. In need of something to do, he actually joined a local Confederate unit as a volunteer, before jumping ship on that after a few weeks. Yeah. Yeah? Kind of went like, hmm... Maybe this was a this was a bad idea. I regret this. Things were not working out so well in the South, so he decided it might be best to get out of Dodge, and he made his way to Nevada with his brother Orion. I, I like uh, how you put that one. Things were not going so well in the South. Well, they weren't. <laughs> we're well, they weren't losing yet. It was only two weeks into the matter. It was going to get way worse. Um, it took two weeks for them to make the journey by stagecoach. You know what they say, though. The travel to Nevada goes by quickly. It's leaving that feels like it takes forever. He spent the next three years doing the whole Desert West thing. His time out in the desert also inspired him to write Roughing It, which focused on his time as a miner on the Comstock Lode, which he was not all that good at doing. He hit the road again, deciding to become a... (laughs) I always give myself fun jokes. Hit the road again, deciding to become a liberal cuck, and took his talents to the home of the San Francisco Treat. San Francisco. I hate you so much. The internet loves it. (laughs) It was during this time uh, his writing career began to take off. He wrote for the Sacramento Union, which sent him to Hawaii, then the Sandwich Islands, to do some reporting. He also got some of his work published in the Saturday Press and New York Weekly. He also got to know influential people in the field. Things were looking Mark. Everything's coming up Twain. Yep. He got his newspaper to pay to send him to the Mediterranean so he could write about what he saw. He managed to go through most of Europe in the Middle East on his travels. During one fateful jaunt, he met Charles Langdon, who showed him a picture of his sister. Well, Mrs. Twain <laughs> said, Without I, context, that just sounds really weird. Hey, you want to you wanna see a picture of my sister? Yeah, my name's, all the time. my name's, what was it, Charles? Charles Langdon. My name's Charles Langdon. Check out my sister, man. Like, nice to meet you. Here's my sister. <laughs> You got you got just let him talk. It's cool. You can, yeah, you can, you can just you can just interrupt him. Has anyone ever showed you the picture of their sister? No. I just went like, hey. <laughs> anyway, so he shows uh, Mr. Twain here the picture, and he was immediately smitten. And his response was, "Wow, that's your sister. I'm gonna marry her." Um, her name was Olivia, by the way. I'm gonna marry that. <laughs> so there was no word as to what she was doing in that picture to elicit such a response, but it must have been something really impressive, something impressively sexy. <laughs> so upon returning from abroad and compiling what became known as the Innocence Abroad, Twain was offered honorary membership in Yale's secret and exclusive Scroll and Key Society. It's no skull and bones, but damn it, they have Gary Trudeau. You know, Doonesbury and the real Dr. Spock <laughs> eat shit skulls and bones. What? Scroll key till I die. Why those two people? Well, better two people to measure a secret society. The guy, the guy who, who wrote, which one? Which Doonesbury. one is Doonesbury? And the real Dr. Spock. Which one? 
Which one is Doonesbury? Doonesbury's a political comic. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't narrow it down. It's the one with like, like it's been in the paper for like 30, 40 years and it's, yeah. You'd recognize it if you saw it. Megan's not culture. It's the, what's the one that's not Peanuts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Archie. <laughs> so it was 1868. Twain was 33 and trying to win over Olivia from the photograph. He wrote mad sexy letters to her, basically the 2019 version of sliding into her DMs. And he asked her to marry him. She said no. Womp, womp. A heartbreak. But much like a pre-2019 woke man, he didn't take no for an answer and continued to slide into those DMs. Just stay, just get get out. Stay out of the DMs. Maybe he sent dick pics. Maybe he promised mad riches. Maybe he promised he'd split her in twain with his little twain. God, I, you know, I was honestly just waiting for you to drop that. that whatever, was just another, just, just waiting for that shoe to fall. Whatever it was, after three years, she agreed to marriage and the two got hitched. Jeez. Let that be a lesson. He just wore her down, huh? Let that be a lesson. Never give up. No. No, don't take that lesson away from this. Olivia it's a came, bad lesson. Olivia came from a wealthy liberal family. Through her, Twain met Harriet Beecher Stowe and Frederick Douglass, and a lot of people in that whole utopian social scene, which included people like Ona Wickloss alumnus Nathaniel Hawthorne, Emerson and Thoreau, and of course, Manure Mountain. <laughs> Um, the, the transcendentalists, they, they lived on a, a commune. Was it Bro- Brook Farm? Yeah. Being, being hippies yeah. in the woods and Hawthorne's job, because I just assume that he, he was the most easily bullied of the bunch, which holds up in his bio. Uh, his job was to shovel the poop hill. <laughs> <laughs> and who can ever forget Manure Mountain? <laughs> no, I can never forget. Mark Twain wouldn't have stood for that shit. <laughs> The uh, couple would wind up having three daughters and a son, the son dying at 19 months of age. The family moved to Hartford, Connecticut, and lived there for most of the couple's marriage. It was there Twain wrote most of his best-known works. While in the Northeast, and given his uh, self-interest in all things science, Twain got to know both Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison. Twain was not one to pick sides, I guess. A uh, man who was both pro-electrocuting elephants and pro-David Bowie. (laughs) A man's man, if you will. That's that's what you got. You know that Thomas Edison did an elephant murder, and the only thing you know about Nikola Tesla is he was played by David Bowie in, um, what was it, The Prestige? Yeah. <laughs> but really, uh, Twain was intrigued by grandiose ideas, like time travel as we see in a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court, but also more grounded science, like forensics. Twain was actually a bit of an inventor himself. He created his own improved version of sus- suspenders. He... <laughs> No, for real. He no, cre- I, I believe that. That's just like a funny thing. Just like, these suspenders suck. I'm gonna fix them. He created a history trivia game. But most importantly of all, he invented a scrapbook that became sticky if you made the pages wet so you wouldn't need to hunt down any glue. So he oh, had yeah, three inventions. That last was pretty impressive, actually. Yeah. While Twain was making good money with all his writing, he actually had a hard time keeping his hands on it. He was not a bad investor. He was a horrible investor case in point he invested three hundred thousand dollars in a typesetting machine that became completely obsolete and replaced almost as soon as he sunk money into it by the way three hundred thousand dollars converted into 2019 trump bucks would be oh you know nine million dollars holy shit yeah he he invested nine million dollars in a what was it a typewriter typesetter yes that's 
That's pretty bad. Yeah, so unsurprisingly, <laughs> uh, such losses really hurt the family's standing and finding it too expensive to live in Connecticut, so they moved to Europe, which we've seen a couple of times now across these authors. It's like, true. Like America's too expensive. They moved to Europe in the late 1800s. They just kind of give up. So they America. moved through France, Germany, and Italy, at some point staying in rooms for a buck fifty a day, or $42 in today's money, which is pretty bad for motel rooms. Twain did get back on his feet by giving lectures around the world, and through a friend, uh, Henry Huddleston Rogers, a principal of Standard Oil, who basically took control of Twain's finances, since Twain couldn't be trusted to handle them appropriately anymore. <laughs> Among the speeches he gave, one was at the Savage Club, a secret Masod- uh, Masonic. Masonic. Masonic? Yeah, secret Masonic lodge in London. I thought you were going to say a secret misogynist. <laughs> I was like, whoa, where, where was Oh, it might have been also. It might have been. Where he was one of only three men to ever be an honorary inductee, another being the Prince of Wales. Twain said of this achievement, well, it must make the Prince of Wales feel mighty fine. Always, always humble. He uh, took up his final residency at Disney's Epcot at the American Adventures attraction where he and Benjamin Franklin <laughs> guide you through 30, or excuse me, 300 years of American history in, oh, about 20 minutes. Some and say that still there yeah, to this some, day. Some say the two are mere animatronics that look and sound like the real duo. But I know the darker truth. Anyway. Okay, yeah, let's not. Let's just move on from that. After getting back on his feet financially, uh, Twain moved the family back to Manhattan where he lived out the rest of his life. He died April 21st, 1910 at the age of 75 due to a heart attack, but maybe more specifically due to heartbreak and just outright depression. The end of his life kind of sucked. Wife Olivia died in 1904 after 34 years of marriage. Twain was 69. He also had to bury two of his daughters in his later years. Several close friends also died, including that gent from Standard Oil who helped the Twain family get back on their feet financially. When he died, the Twain estate was worth about $13 million in today's money. Dang. Not too shabby after being nearly broke. Twain sounded like he was okay with dying. In the year before his death, he said this, and I quote, I came in with Haley's Comet in 1835. It's coming again next year, and I expect to go out with it. It will be the greatest disappointment of my life if I don't go out with Haley's Comet. The Almighty said, no doubt. Now here are two unaccountable freaks. They came in together. They must go out together. He died the day after Haley's Comet's closest approach. Damn. He, he so he knew. He, fe- he felt it. He sensed it. That was the length and breadth that you that you did there. But what, what Lars told us about before we started rolling is also that apparently Mark Twain was a Shakespeare truther. Yeah, his um, knowledge and familiarity with the lexicon of riverboats made him think that Shakespeare's similar like fluency with, with history and ca- all the characters and eras that he depicted wouldn't have been accurate if he had simply been like a actor playwright from Stratford. So Mark Twain kind of led the, the academic charge to try to decipher Shakespeare's true origin because he was like, well, I couldn't have written about riverboats as accurately had I not been, you know, uh, working on one. And so his thought was, well, maybe someone who, you know, like a noble person who had more um, knowledge of history and the terminology would have written the play. So that's interesting. People kind of, maybe that's annoying that he did that, but it's interesting. <laughs> it's, a li- it's a little annoying. So it's, he probably would have been an Oxfordian, I would imagine. Uh, maybe. Yeah. I mean, we did talk about it because we have that whole episode where we talk about the big Willie Shakespeare conspiracy. Yes. Um, that some of the pushback is that Shakespeare, one, went missing for like a decade where no one had any records of him. And so maybe he actually did tour himself through Italy 
and uh, Eastern Europe. But then also he came across a lot of actors who came from around the world. And he could have been just that asshole who sits down and be, where are you from? And what happened there? And what happened the next day? And just took copious notes on what happened around the world. Tell me everything about Venice. Right, because that was one of the things, right? That he yeah. writes about the wall in uh, like Verona. Yeah. It's like, how would you know unless you were there? And so it's like, well, maybe he just met people who were in Verona. And all they want to talk about is that wall. Maybe he just badgered the hell out of everyone. <laughs> but so upon um, Twain's death, President William Howard Taft, the president who is best remembered for getting stuck in a bathtub. That's the only thing I... If you said, tell me something about Taft, I'd be like, that's the dude they had to pry out of a bathtub. <laughs> he said, upon the death of Mark Twain, Mark Twain gave great pleasure, real intellectual enjoyment to millions, and his works will continue to give such pleasure to millions yet to come. His humor was American, but he was nearly as much appreciated by Englishmen and people of other countries as by his own countrymen. He has made Americans, Englishmen, and you know, everybody else. And everybody else. (laughs) He has made an enduring part of American literature. On that, though, it's important to mention that his text had to endure ever so much because people tried to get them banned and taken out of libraries all the time. Sometimes it was Northerners because of the language he used, in particular how he referred to certain characters, like Jim, who we'll talk about today. Sometimes it was Southerners who were not all that happy with how Twain depicted religion and, well, the South in general. You see, Twain did change a lot when it came to his opinions throughout his life. I mean, he did sign up to be part of the Confederacy for a hot minute there. But even beyond that, he went from being a staunch imperialist to a staunch anti-imperialist. Case in point, thinking America should completely take over Hawaii to being completely against that idea by his death. I think another good example is looking at the things he wrote about Native Americans. In 1870, he wrote, A savage's heart is a cesspool of falsehood, of treachery, and of low and devilish instincts. With him, gratitude is an unknown emotion, and when one does him a kindness, it is safest to keep the face toward him, lest the reward be an arrow in the back. The scum of the earth. Wow. Uh, Whereas about three decades later, he wrote, There are many humorous things in this world. Among them, the white man's notion that he is less savage than the other savages. He also points out that Native Americans were subjected to, quote, robbery, humiliation, and slow, slow murder through poverty and the white man's whiskey. We will talk about the specific challenges to Huck Finn after we actually learn about the text. And so for that, I turn to Megan. It is interesting that his development... In terms of like his his opinions and the evolution of of that uh, went in the opposite direction that people normally go and they become like crotchety old men. <laughs> I guess you get to know you know Harry Beecher Stowe, Frederick Douglass, and the Utopians. <laughs> it's going to change your opinion a bit. Mm-hmm. And I guess if you just move from uh, from, from, from the deep south, from, from Florida, you, yeah, Missouri, and to you see, to you Connecticut see more and of the world New York, and all that. But <laughs> just goes to show people can learn a thing, become better people, etc. Yeah, and I was to say, Harriet Beecher Stowe's house was right. They were neighbors. I don't know if you mentioned that, but if you go visit no. his house, you can also visit hers in Hartford because they're right next to each other. So that was cool. It is cool. Although, I got to wonder what kind of neighbor Mark Twain would be to have. <laughs> I, feel like it would, I feel like it would be a little bit annoying. Or he would just build like a really big hedge and was just like, never talk to me, ever. <laughs> a lot of cigar smoke coming through your windows. Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Hey, everybody. It's Megan. Just slide on into the podcast. 
to remind you that our show is brought to you by our wonderful, beautiful, effervescent patrons, of which our newest ones are Miranda and Nick. Thank you guys for pledging. You're wonderful. And we love you. Also, if you're interested in starting your own podcast, consider Simplecast, the host that we use that comes with all kinds of super sick, granular analytic features that are just extremely sexy and let me be an absolute creeper by being able to see, like, every city where someone downloads an episode all across the world, which is how we are aware of and cherish our Reykjavik listener. And so if you use the sign-up link in the show notes, then you get two free weeks, trying it out, giving it a shot, and I get money, which is, you know, it's good. It keeps our cat from eating our toes. This episode's pod pal is the Dirty Bits. Yeah, I know. You're like, hmm. To call it a history podcast would be to do it injustice because it is also incredibly funny and hosted by Tawny Plattis, who's a professional voice actor. And so she also just sounds real good while she's doing it. She puts on voices and she's just hysterical. It's an amazing show. Uh, Go listen to that shit. If you're looking for an in-depth, Detailed, academic analysis of the past, devoid of any comedy or entertainment value presented by an educated historian with a PhD. This isn't the show for you. Hi, I'm Tawny Plattis, a professional voiceover actor who gives a very casual, very Southern Californian, and hopefully very comedic retelling of the sexy, scandalous, and salacious stories from history your teacher probably left out on my podcast, The Dirty Bits. Catch the show on tawnyvoice.com or anywhere podcasts are found. Chat soon, lovebug. All right, then, without without further ado, let's get into the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which which is just just, just a fortunate name, because for most of the book, it's just Huck. It's just like, Huck. Like you've kind of got something gross in the back of your throat. Yeah, that name really never took off. You don't see a lot of Hucks nowadays. No, not as many. <laughs> Maybe at the time, like, it was, like, with uh, Twilight, everyone was naming their kids, like, Bella and Jacob and stuff. Maybe after the book came out, there were just a, a whole rash of hucks and, uh... Are we going to say yeah. Tom? Yeah, we got stuck with that. And, and yeah, I was going to say Bip Geckies. That was really... That was very <laughs> Tom Sawyer, but... <laughs> so the book opens with the, the notice that I, I mentioned before. It says, quote, Persons attempting to find a motive in this narrative will be executed. Persons attempting to find a moral in it will be banished. Persons attempting to find a plot in it will be shot. Which which is a, a bold, if perhaps unnecessarily aggressive way to start a book. <laughs> At 14, I was like, all right, intriguing, tell me more. <laughs> he was taking on the haters. <laughs> well, he's also inviting people to do all three of those things, like, while he's protecting himself, right? I'm not, like, yeah. I'm not, I'm not criticizing racism. Am I? But in fact, he knows he is. So yeah, his humor is a way for him to distance his judgment, I guess. That's like a cool, a smart thing he does often. Yeah, definitely. It's just like, hey, I said there there wasn't any kind of morals in here and that if you see the morals. I, that's on you. That's a you thing. Yeah. <laughs> so the story is narrated by Huck himself. And so he reminds us of the previous events from The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Most importantly, the time he and Tom found 12 grand in a cave, which is apparently just over uh, $345,000 in in today money. Damn. Yeah. Clearly, I need to be exploring more caves. 
Hmm. Uh, but Huck is just a, a dumb, smelly, what, like 10-year-old? He's like 10, 11. Uh, so his share of the money is carefully put away and monitored by Judge Thatcher, the town official, until Huck is grown up and not constantly running off to be naked in the woods somewhere. Sure, but if you convert his age from, you know, the 1830s to today, he's like 65. <laughs> I don't think it works that way. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. He was grizzled. He was getting Social Security. <laughs> he may have been grizzled. That's That's a possibility. So since Huck's dad is a, uh, a shitty, abusive drunk with a tendency to wander off, the person currently feeding him, housing him, and telling him that if he slaps at the table he's going to hell is Widow Douglas and her sister, Miss Watson. And, and they're determined to civilize the crap out of this feral little forest animal. But Huck is thoroughly uninterested in religion, and uh, he's okay with going to hell. Because he's fairly certain that Tom Sawyer will also be going to hell, and he's like, ah, it'll be alright then. My friend's there. It's cool. And he has that thing where he's like, well, I'll go to hell if that means protecting Jim means I have to go to hell. That's fine because it's the right thing to do. You know, if hell is a social construct, it's worth sacrificing my own life for, for him. Um, and that's interesting. That whole idea of like the, the social contract, like we're supposed to be protected by society. But if we violate that, you know, our own personal like goodness transcends whatever like imposed morality gets dropped on us. So I know we're jumping ahead in the plot, but like. That's part of his character. He's bigger than than the prescripted like limits of, of society. And that's I think why he's an awesome character. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's the thing. Like that's kind of because it takes it takes a long journey to kind of get him to that point because he's a kid and this is, you know, what he's kind of being taught and, you know, societally and all that. Cause he starts off with, Yeah, like I'll go to hell because this stuff you're telling me to do, like not to spit and to sit up is boring and dumb. But that, you know, in the back of his head he's actually as we're going to talk about, like, he's actually kind of freaked out by it. And so it is a big deal when it changes from, like, I'll go to hell because because my buddy's probably going to be there. And because all these, like, making me go to school and all this stuff sucks to, like, I'm going to go to hell because I'm going against the societal constructs. And I know that that's what's necessary to, like, be a good person. So it's definitely a journey. Because we do start off here with Huck sneaking out of his house to hang out with Tom. And they fuck with Jim, like a bunch. So Jim is Miss Watson's slave. And they, like, play really mean pranks on him. And they get, like, even when it's like, this is my friend Jim and society be damned, they're still doing really mean shit to him. But, I mean, I guess we'll we'll get there. So, yeah, Tom convinces Huck to... Just start a gang with him in the woods with other boys, which they seal with a blood pact that if one of them breaks, they'll, the others will kill their whole family, which, you know, kid stuff, just normal things kids do. No, nothing fun had been invented yet. If you want to entertain yourself, like, you got to get into some dark shit. <laughs> so despite all this, Huck slowly starts coming a, a person. He's taking baths. He's going to school. And then his dad, Pap, comes to town to fuck it all up. Couldn't he stay away, shopping for smokes, getting the milk? <laughs> yeah. Had to come back. Huck is really smart about it, though, because the, the second he hears that he's coming back, he runs to Judge Thatcher and he, like, sells him his share of the, the $12,000 that he found uh, so that Pap has, like, no legal access to it, which is, like, that's quick thinking for a kid. <laughs> mm. And then he visits Jim, who has a magic fortune-telling hairball and asks the hairball what to do next. Which is less smart, but, you know. The hairball? The hair, yeah, well, <laughs> or asking the hairball. C- c- consulting the hairball. <laughs> but maybe it knows. Magic hairball. Yeah. He shakes it. But how does the hairball talk? How does it give you an answer, exactly? Well, the, the, Jim knows. Jim reads the hairball, and he, he tells you. The hairball speaks through him. 
Yeah, there's a lot. They they play with Jim's superstition. I mean, that's a constant thing throughout the book that was a stereotype, right? Of superstitious African-American people was kind of a negative stereotype that is pretty present, you know, throughout. Much as Jim is a very loved and interesting character, he is also pretty two-dimensional in a lot of ways. And I think that's an example of that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So Pap shows up and he does try to get Huck's money, but it is safe from him for now. And so, you know, what he does instead is just abuse Huck a whole bunch, keep him from going to school, beat him for any money he does have lying around so he can go spend it on alcohol. And uh, Judge Thatcher tries to have Pap removed as Huck's legal guardian, which you would think would be pretty easy, seeing as literally the entire town knows what a piece of shit he is, but... Uh, the judge who's in charge of that whole situation is a different dude. is just like, no, no, this man beating his kid and fighting people in town, is, it's clearly a cry for help. And, like, he, he tries to help him turn his life around. He gives him, like, new clothes, which Pap then immediately sells for alcohol. Pap then kidnaps Huck, and he makes him live in a shack in the woods. And he keeps him locked up there, and Huck's like, well, I can't go to school, and my dad beats me pretty much constantly, but I don't have to worry about getting yelled at for, for slouching or spitting or whatever, so he tries to look on the bright side. Mm. <laughs> Except then Pap gets super crazy drunk. He, he yells about black men being able to vote in some states, and then he hallucinates that his son is the devil and tries to kill him. So it's just some good father-son bonding time. Like you do. He eventually passes out, and Huck decides being able to pee in the woods is not worth the shit. He finds an empty canoe that was drifting down the river. He waits until Pap's getting more alcohol in town, and he saws his way out of the cabin, but first has the presence in mind to fake his own death by smearing pig's blood all over the shack to make it look like he was murdered. My question is, why did he have what was apparently a pretty significant uh, stock of pig's blood on hand? He kills a pig, right? Does he? Okay, was it that he kills a pig? Yeah. Straight out of um, the Lord of the Flies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kids just be killing pigs. Kids, kids be killing pigs. Yeah. There's no time to worry about that now either way, because it's his time for Daring River Escapes in the Night, as Huck successfully evades his dad and sails to Jackson Island, and he hides on the island for three days while the whole town searches for his body, combing the river in the best way that they know how, firing cannons into it. Which I, I can't even make, like, a, a proper joke about because my brain is just too preoccupied with, like, the town. So just being like, blam! Like, you see his body anywhere? No? <laughs> okay, how about now? <laughs> it's like, oh, nope, we got to reload the cannon. Well, it's part of the Western cannon, so hey. Ah. But then Huck realizes he's not alone on the island. And who should he find there? The pig. He came back to haunt him. Yep, ghost pig. Ghost pig. They're the pig's family. Jim, who is uh, randomly running away also in a fortuitous plot twist. Yes. <laughs> it's extremely convenient, and and nothing with that level of super convenient plot contrivances will ever happen again in this book at all. But yes, J Jim's running away uh, because Miss Watson was going to sell him to someone in New Orleans, and Jim... Well, Jim first freaks out because he thinks Huck is a ghost. Uh, but then Jim makes Huck promise not to tell. And Huck has a hard time with this because, you know, in his mind, which we, we gotta remember, again, it's because the society is the only viewpoint that Huck has grown up around. This is the equivalent of, like, a, a piece of Mrs. Watson's furniture deciding to steal itself out of her house and, and being like, hey, bro, uh, be, be cool. Don't let her know that her end table is hiding from her on an island. Because... He sees Jim as a piece of property as opposed to a person, because that's how they did. 
But he does agree, and uh, they spend a while going back and forth about good and bad luck signs, which they're they're both fairly obsessed with. As superstitious as Jim is, Huck is not that much less superstitious. He, he freaks out about throwing salt behind him and accidentally killing spiders and stuff like that, mm. and what is sort of good and bad luck. Uh, Jim says, though, that because he has a hairy chest, it's a sign that he's lucky. And, like, Jim, like, dude, ba- based on your current situation... And the cultural, political climate of the antebellum South and your entire life up until this point, I'm gonna have to disagree with you on that one. <laughs> RJ, you got you got a pretty hairy chest. Do you consider yourself to be lucky? Very. <laughs> Every day. Yeah. And I rub it for extra good luck. That's how that works. The probably? thicker, the better. <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking for some of the Patreons that we could have that certain level where I could send them so you could some send of them my s- chest hair. <laughs> It is a renewable resource. <laughs> Just put it in an envelope. I was thinking a little vial. <laughs> you can you wear it, it around. Yeah, so like a, around. Uh, what's it called? Like a reliquary? Yeah. <laughs> That's why you need an extra little bit of luck. You reach it to the vial, you, you give got, it a little... You got like the little fragment of like a canonized saint and then a little bit of your chest hair. Yeah, my little face. That is upsetting. And if you burn it, it's even better. Okay, nope. Hints of vanilla, leather... <laughs> And tobacco. So speaking of burning, they created decoy fire. <laughs> thank you. To escape. And uh, thank, thank you, God. <laughs> they're able to escape because they both have presence of mind to realize, oh, well, if they think we're on a different part of the island, we can escape this and they won't find us and they team up. And they conveniently, again, find an abandoned sort of a makeshift houseboat and they go to sail off the island and Jim sees a dead body nearby and he's just like, ew, gross, Huck, don't look at it. It's it's gnarly. It's a it's a gross dead body. It's ghastly. Yes, it's ghastly. That's it. Yeah. Whose dead body is it, you might ask? The pig. God, get, get off the pig. Jim. D- Huck that Senior. That would be really confusing. <laughs> uh, see, I was going to say, oh, no, no, don't. Don't even worry about it. Don't. It's nothing. It's not a thing. I promise. It's never going to come back. We don't know that yet. Whoa. It's just a dead body. Don't even worry about it. Why'd we even mention it? Wink. But Jim, Jim knows. And that's like Jim being a good friend. He knows he doesn't want Huck to see this, right? He doesn't want him to be traumatized. Oh, yeah. Or, or you know, in writing, they talk about this idea of save the cat, right? In screenwriting, like there's always a scene 30 minutes in where main character does something heroic like save a cat from being run over or help a blind person cross the street or something this example of jim save the cat moment for huck where he's like really a really good guy which we already knew but i think like it's cool how twain inserts that scene early-ish in the book and it's a lot you see when you start to notice that so many great stories have that moment and, and this is that moment you know yeah, where he's, he doesn't want to traumatize a child with the dead body of his <laughs> What a guy. <laughs> See, what a, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a nice thing, but yeah, when you put it in those words. So they, they head out to start their wild river adventures down the Mississippi, and, and who knows what kind of whimsical mischief they'll get into. Like Huck putting a rattlesnake in Jim's bed and it bites him. <laughs> In return, Jim's like, hey, hey, go dress like a girl and, and go into town and go, go see if anybody's talking about stuff. Also, there was a, a Huck-sized dress that was just on board this boat already, conveniently. So where's the girl? We don't know. Don't read into it. No. <laughs> Huck goes into town and sees an old woman knitting alone and talks to her and is like, Hi, I'm Sally Williams. I'm just a poor girl with a sick mom you've never seen before, which is probably pretty weird in a town this small. Anyway, how you doing? You heard any good gossip lately? And the lady's just like, hell yeah, I have. This kid, Huck Finn, was 
turbo murder and everyone thought that his drunk shitbag dad did it. Except there's also this escaped slave and so we've all decided that he murdered Huck because that makes way more sense than the openly abusive fuckface who everyone knows has been desperately trying to find a way to get his son's six thousand dollars. Obviously. Oh, yeah, he only abuses him. He doesn't kill him. Doesn't fit the MO. Racism. <laughs> it's, like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's got to be this other guy. It's got to be this escaped slave because, you know, he's a slave. So Jim and Huck get, get the fuck out of town. And they, uh, they roll down the river, grappling with ethical dilemmas. Like, is it bad we're stealing people's chickens for food? And... If we find three robbers ready to do some murder on a steamboat and then steal their boat and leave them to drown while the steamboat is sinking, are we good? The answer to both questions is kind of like a solid maybe. <laughs> it depends on who you ask. They should ask the hairball. <laughs> Hairball's cool with it. I mean, it is supposed to be a whole thing of, like, Huck is kind of trying to figure out his own personal moral compass because he's been getting a lot of conflicting things from different people. Welcome um, to life. Yeah, that's 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 kind of the point. Yeah. That's 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 what Mark Twain is, is doing. Wow. Yo. But he told me that's not a message of the story. He told me don't look for such messages. Or he'll shoot you. Exactly. I'm taking him at his word. They make a plan to sail to this place called Cairo at the bottom of Illinois and sell their boat and take a steamship to Ohio, which is a free state, so that Jim could be safe. They start to bond. They grow closer. Huck makes Jim think that he's dead in fog as prank. But, but he, you know, you see him start to grow because he feels bad and he apologizes to him. And then he pats himself on the back for being such a good kid that he can say sorry to a black guy. Which I, I, I guess, you know, all things considered, it's character growth. Except actually not really, because as they get closer to Cairo and Jim gets more and more excited about being free, Huck starts to have like this moral crisis coming on because he, he thinks, you know, oh, Miss Watson, she sure did try real hard to teach him about books and, and religion and, and take care of him. And he's paying her back by helping like, quote unquote, steal a piece of her property. And he decides that he really ought to turn Jim in. And, you know... Kind of like how you were just saying that uh, it, you hit like that plot point, like the save the cat thing that you kind of hit that cliche where it's like as soon as he's made that decision that I'm going to do this thing, Jim's just like, gosh, Huck, like you're you're such a great kid and a great friend. And and most people would have turned me in or, or maybe even like killed me or something. But you saw me as an actual person and you helped me. And I'll always be grateful for that. Even if you did put a fucking rattlesnake <laughs> in my bed. <laughs> and everyone else has broken all their promises to Jim. And he's like, you know, you kept your promise. And I love you for that. And Huck's like, oh, really? <laughs> of all the times to like be such a f nice friend, you know? Exactly. But he has a change of heart and he, he hides Jim from some guys on another raft who are looking for runaway slaves. He puts a blanket over him and he's like, no, nah, that's my dad. He's got smallpox. Don't look at him. And the guys on the raft are like, okay, we'll do. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the universe rewards Huck for, for this good deed by having them accidentally sail past Cairo, get their boat smashed by a steamship, almost drown, and then get attacked by a pack of wild dogs. So uh, the lucky chest hair does not seem to be working out. Well, not that chest hair. But this chest hair always works. 100% oh, yeah. of the time. If you'd been there, everything would have gone great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would have solved their problems. That happens before they miss, like, the uh, tributary to go 
where it branches off, right? And they're supposed to go like north. They miss they miss that juncture and then they keep going south. Is that like after the steamboat? I'm trying to remember. They miss it in the fog. Yeah, and is that before? Yeah, because the fog is is before. Because there's the there's the steamboat. There's the first. There's a lot of steamboats, as yeah. one might imagine. Because there's the steamboat where they meet the robbers, which I kind of mentioned briefly, where they just leave them to drown because they're robbers, so it's okay. And then yeah, there's the moment in the the fog where Jim thinks Huck is dead briefly, and then they have their bonding moment, and then they pass the other guys on the boat who are looking for runaway slaves, and then they pass Cairo. They real or they realize that they passed Cairo and then they get mashed into the other steamship. <laughs> it's like that, but to me, that's a moment of, you know, you can have all this idealism and optimism in these plans, and it's an example of how, like, just the randomness of nature, like the chaos theory Jurassic Park moment of, like, you can have the best <laughs> the best laid plans of mice and men, right? And they can go wrong. You, you can't escape that just by chance. And that's, like, one of the real tragedies of the book, right? That, like, they almost have this plan. It just goes wrong just by the fact that there's a fog blocking the, um, the river that was going to bring them to freedom. So it's interesting. It's like a tragic moment, but it's telling about what you were saying that it's about life, right? Like Twain wants to show this kid growing up and how he deals with that because bad things do happen. Yeah, like, you, you know, the universe is not necessarily going to reward you for being a good person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to grab it by the short hairs of the chest <laughs> and earn it. <laughs> so at this point, Huck gets separated from Jim, but rescued by a family called the Grangerfords. Grangerfords. And he uh, makes up another fake persona. He's George Jackson now. And before you could say Jim who, Huck's having a great time living with the Grangerfords until they get him mixed up in a, a blood feud that they have with another family called the Shepherdsons. And a bunch of them all shoot each other and die. And Huck gets a little bit traumatized and hides in a tree. Jim finds him and rescues him and it gets him the, the fuck out of that, that sort of Hatfield and McCoy situation they got going on. And there's that scene where they're in, in, in church with their guns. It's a very like sardonic satirical scene they you know yes. american re, uh, religion and and weapons combined that's the real americans you know <laughs> yeah twain has a fun time with that yeah they're supposed to be like this sort of very genteel kind of like upstanding family in their weird gun-based blood feud. And then, of course, also none of them remember why they're in the blood feud because it's been going on for so long. It's like at this point, well, we can't stop. It doesn't matter, right? <laughs> Who cares? Yeah. Someone has to end it. And Smith and Wesson is just the man. <laughs> uh, also... And, and yet another, you know, for all that the universe is cruel and random, it also gives them things like, hey, the raft wasn't destroyed after all. Because. Uh, so things are, are quiet for a good little while, and they drift around, and they just enjoy nature. And they're, they're buck-ass naked, like, a lot. And it's, you know, it's supposed to be a natural thing. It's nature. It's, you know, you said Twain was hanging out with the transcendentalists and all them, and they're all a bunch of hippies, but, like, you're on a ratty ass raft i feel like if you're gonna put like your your bare bits on that you're gonna catch some diseases or like get tetanus or something just from like a practical standpoint <laughs> so uh along the way just kind of for funsies uh they pick up two conmen running from the law who call themselves the duke and the king that they're impersonating royalty and they're just going to take this narrative right the hell off the rails Huck knows that they're full of shit and he, he doesn't really care enough to call them on it. Like, Jim believes them because 
Jim is a, kind of a simple two-dimensional character who will just, you know, believe stuff. And they all run scams together that, for some reason, they hinge on the Duke and the King putting on a production of Romeo and Juliet. It's really important to their scams. Uh, they go to a town and there's there's drunk shootings and circuses and just way better entertainment than, like, two jackasses trying to do a Shakespeare. And uh, they steal all the townsfolk's money, they, they hit the river, and then they head to a new town where they end up impersonating the brothers of a recently deceased rich dude to gain his inheritance that these his two brothers are supposed to be showing up from england and they they just they are they haven't arrived and so they're like oh it's us and the big running joke is just because it is in dialect and because you get like a, a sense of all these very good accents that they their british accents are just horrendous oh <laughs> yeah they're like yours actually it's us <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're gonna say, say uh, we, we've come to see our dead brother. <laughs> oh, we've come to see our dead brother, yes. <laughs> Actually, that might be a little bit better than theirs, because if you try to do that with a southern accent, then you'd probably have it. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I can mix them all together. Uh, yeah, you can't even do, you can barely do one at a time. Exactly. <laughs> the, uh, the common word between southern and British accents is reckon. They both say, I reckon, I reckon, mate. That's true. I reckon. Probably saying that. <laughs> Ties it all together. So I gotta say, for, like, a kid who was having such an intense moral crisis about turning his friend into like, the authorities not too long ago, Huck is pretty chill with all these crimes his new friends get up to and involve him in. It's only illegal if you get caught. <laughs> Except that a pretty girl named Mary gets involved, and now he feels bad. And he, he confesses the con to her, and they, he makes a plan to escape with Jim after ratting out the, the Duke and the King. And there's this whole thing where they're hiding gold, and it, it's just, it's a lot. It's kind of exhausting. And then the actual brothers that they're impersonating show up. And the one thing that's really funny is that the King and the Duke double down. And they, they're like, these guys are the impersonators. We're the real brothers. They do like a thing of like, well, what tattoo did the dead guy have on his chest? And they have to dig the body up to see who's right. And it's just insane. And so Huck agrees that he's just kind of had enough of this. He runs back to the boat and him and Jim are going to leave, except the, the Duke and the King also show up and make it back. And they throttle each other and, and fight. And then they get drunk and they're just having a good time. And Huck is not. He, he's kind of lost his patience with them. And then the King sells Jim to some dude named Silas Phelps for beer money. Which is, it's just like, holy shit. Well, these characters are the corruption of society, right? It's like uh, him and Jim are okay for the most part alone, but you add extra friends, quote, you know, it's, it's, it, that's what happens. And I think that's a good satire. But I also think this section of the book, like you're saying, it is painful and it's very long. And it's like maybe funnier back then. You know, I feel like comedy doesn't age as well as tragedy. And this is like not uh, not so hilarious. You know, it could be half as long. Yeah. No disrespect. It, it really could. Yeah. No, full disrespect, Mark Twain. <laughs> um, no, it's, su it's super long. And that's why I just kind of skimmed right along through it. And yeah, like you, you get a bit of humor in it just through the sheer absurdity. But it, you, you could cut that stuff down and really not lose anything. So at this point, Huck doesn't really know what to do because he can't exactly write to Miss Watson to try to fix the situation because it's like, yeah, I'm with, I'm with your slave who ran away and I helped and we were running away. So he has to go to this Phelps guy and sort of figure it out for himself. And he arrives at the Phelps farm and meets a woman who introduces herself as Aunt Sally and is like, oh, you finally arrived. It looks like you've had such a hard journey. And Huck's just like, yup, I, I sure did. Here I am. Me. me. It's me. And it's a me. And in perhaps the most convenient. Actually, no. 
no, not the most, second most convenient turn of the whole novel. Aunt Sally thinks that Huck is her nephew who was supposed to come visit. Her nephew, Tom Sawyer. <laughs> right. Now that's a guy I can make believe I am. Exactly. I could pull that one off. Hmm. And then Huck even manages to intercept the real Tom before he reaches the, the farm and they have to do another round of like, you're a ghost. No, I'm not. Back and forth. And Huck tells them about all their adventures and they, they make a plan of how they're going to bring Tom in. And, and, and plan is kind of a generous word because it's basically Tom shows up and it's just like, yes, it is I, your other nephew. Silas Sawyer. And, and no one questions it. And it's interesting how in Tom Sawyer, he fakes his own death too, right? So it's like, it's a common theme. Doesn't he? Yeah. He hides up in the rafters. Yeah, at the church so that he can watch everyone cry over him. And like, what angsty, you know, 12-year-old hasn't had that? Where it's like, yeah, I wish I was dead. Then you'd all be sad. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Where Jim is like, I wish I were dead so now I can be free. It's less like vengeful, more practical. But it's interesting how they share that. But as we're going to kind of go go into here, Tom's got a flair for the dramatic so uh, Huck plans on breaking Jim out of a hut that he's, he's being held in near the house and they're going to run for it again. But Tom wants to make things way more complicated because he's a pain in the ass and he suggests digging Jim out because that, you know, that sounds cooler. And Jim's legs also chained to the bed and Huck's like, okay, we just lift the bed up, you know, take the chain out. We're good. And Tom's like, no, let's saw it off. No, wait, let's saw Jim's leg off. No, wait, let's build a moat around the shack. No, wait, let's bake a pie with a rope ladder hit in it these are all plans that he suggests and huck is just like what the fuck is wrong with you uh they plan increasingly more ridiculous ways to break uh jim out they also keep playing like real dickhead pranks on on everybody from the phelpses and to jim they fill jim's shack with rats and snakes and spiders and jim's like hey you know what maybe Maybe you can just leave me behind because, you know, at least no one here keeps putting live animals in my fucking bed. You got punked. <laughs> yeah, you got, yeah, we're, we're punking you. They have to speed things up, though, when they learn that the Phelps are planning on selling Jim. And uh, Tom responds to this by writing the family a vague and anonymous threatening letter, drawing a skull and bones on their door in blood. And uh, just freaking them the hell out. And then on the night they plan to escape, he writes a letter that basically says, I, Tom Sawyer, have stolen your slave. Ha ha, I'm awesome. What is wrong with this kid? He's, he's like the worst combination of a sociopath and an idiot. <laughs> he can be president. <laughs> what? I wasn't ready for that. No, no, no. no. I, didn't, I didn't hear anything. So despite being chased by a whole horde of farmers with guns and dogs, the three actually manage to escape back to the boat, although Tom gets shot in the leg. But it's okay, because he's super psyched about it, because bullet wounds are adventurous and badass, and Jesus Christ, Tom Sawyer, man. So they they have to blindfold and basically kidnap a doctor to uh, treat the wound while Jim hides in the woods, and uh, Huck goes back to the Phelpses. And he lies and says they were out trying to hunt down the runaway slave. And Aunt Sally was, like, legitimately worried about them. And Huck just really feels horrible. Like, the morality is in full force. He feels really bad. He's worried about Jim. He's worried about Tom. He feels terrible because the Phelpses have been very nice to him. And just all around, he he says, you know, like, I'm just going to be good from now on. Then a lot of shit happens at once. So uh, the doctor, Tom, 
and Jim all emerged from the woods, and of course everyone's first instinct is, we're gonna lynch Jim. And the uh, doctor says, like, no, no, I was, I was trying to fix Tom's leg, but uh, I couldn't do it on my own. And Jim came out of hiding to help, even though he knew that he risked, you know, recapture. And everyone's like, oh, that's, that's nice. We won't kill him then. But we will lock him back up. And Tom is just, like, super confused. He's like, what? No, why? Why would you do that? He's free. And there's a collective, like, uh, excuse me? <laughs> and here you can, be, you can reveal the most convenient part of the whole novel. That Miss Watson had given him his freedom in her will when she passed because she loved him. And she died two months ago. So this whole thing was a exercise in ridiculousness. And, and Tom had no, he did not, he was the adventure and the fun was like worth more than this dude's life. So yeah, Tom is not, doesn't have not have good morals. No, Tom knew the entire time. And he just didn't, you know, he didn't, he wanted, he wanted hashtag the drama. He's just a little psychopath. Like I said, I don't remember a ton about the adventures of Tom Sawyer. Like, I remember that he fakes his own death, like we were just saying. But, like, I I don't remember if he's that much of, like, a fucking lunatic in the first book. <laughs> I'd have to reread it. Uh, but it's okay, though. Because Jim is free now. And Tom gives him 40 bucks in exchange for just having been an absolute little fuckface to him. And, and Jim, probably just still really stoked to not have been fucking lynched is just like dope awesome i hold none of this against you because i'm just a really good guy he just wants to be with his family yeah that's that's all he wants and so so what now for young huck well he finds out that that dead body from before from 33 chapters back which i'm pretty sure yes yeah, the reader you don't know because you get you get the whole thing from huck's perspective that you only just now find out that that dead body from the very beginning was in fact pap and so Huck, Huck's good. He doesn't have to worry about his, his horrible, abusive dad anymore. And Aunt Sally is even willing to take Huck in and raise him like a civilized, pants-wearing young man. But Huck is like, fuck that. And he runs away again to parts unknown. The end. Or is it? It's actually not. There's two <laughs> sequels that I'd never heard of. What are the sequels called? Because I, I have not read them. Do you have them in your notes? Uh, yeah, I do have them in my notes. I did write down about them because I'd never heard of them. So Huck goes to space. <laughs> Here's the thing. You're not far <laughs> off. It's uh, Tom Sawyer Abroad. The two sequels are also both narrated by Huck. Okay. So yeah, Tom Sawyer Abroad, which is supposed to be kind of like a Jules Verne parody. It's published in 1894. And Tom and Huck fly to Africa in a hot air balloon. What? <laughs> And then uh, rounding out the series in 1896 is Tom Sawyer Detective, in which Tom and Huck try to solve a murder. That they caused? <laughs> Probably. That'd be pretty easy. And, and I have to mention that this, this version of adult detective Tom Sawyer, which prior to this I've never seen or heard of anywhere, was apparently the concept behind the Tom Sawyer character in the movie that we just can't stop ever talking about on the show, no matter how much we try. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Because <laughs> he comes into the movie and it's like, who are you? I'm Tom Sawyer. I work as a detective for the government. And there's a literary source for it. <laughs> now here's the thing. Mark Twain saw himself as Tom Sawyer. So, you know, he had, he had a troubled uh, youth. And then he came of age. You want to become a detective. You like the science. You wanted to travel to Africa in a hot air balloon. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, he's a, you know, it's about genre, right? Twain always loved to play with genre. Like, so that's cool. Like, he's one of the first popular authors to really, like, transcend genre in, in a way that I think is, like, special. I kind of want to read those books because I'm sure there's some interesting stuff in there. Oh, I definitely want to read them now Now that I know that they exist. I'm super curious, especially the murder one. I really want to see Tom Sawyer solve a murder. <laughs> So other adaptations, there's obviously been a bunch of movies. Huck's been played by everyone from Mickey Rooney to um, Ron Howard to probably the most well-known, which is the movie from 1993. It's the Disney version where uh, Elijah Wood is a tiny, tiny baby Frodo, Huck, and uh, Courtney B. Vance, who I really only know as Johnny Cochran, who was the best character in uh, the OJ season of American Crime Story, is uh, Jim. And then Ron Perlman is, is Pap. Which, yeah, he's scary. And it's it's fine. It's a very cute, you know, 90s live action Disney. There's a Huck Finn anime from 1976. Wow. Oh, there's, it's always great when there's like anime versions of like classic Western um, novels. But this one seems like it pretty much just kind of follows the plot. And it, nothing, nothing has ever come anywhere close to, there's an anime adaptation of Moby Dick. It's called The Legend of Moby Dick. And it's, they're space pirates. Awesome. Yeah. Also, there's apparently a VeggieTales adaptation, and I don't know how that works. This is the blessing and the curse when, when canonized works enter the public domain, right? Yep. They could, you could do whatever you want with them. The image of that Tom and Huck is such an American thing, so countries like Japan are so fascinated with it. Or Moby Dick, too. It's like this very distinctive, these characters, so... Interesting. That's cool. I want to know which vegetables they chose to be the slaves. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> speaking of that, though, I guess it's a, one of the most important culturally significant things about this is why it's so censored and banned and, and like what that says. And that's important. Ki- should kids read this? You know? Yeah, that's kind of where we were going to take things to. So one of the things uh, Megan glossed over here in her summary for people who have not read this text <laughs> There is a lot of cursing that goes back and forth among all the other hijinks. And Jim isn't just Jim. He is the N-word Jim. And so there's a lot going on in this text, the language and otherwise. And so when this story first came out, there were a lot of critiques specifically that maybe children couldn't handle what was between the pages of this book. Uh, One well-known critic was Louisa May Alcott, who said of the text, quote, Could Twain not think of something better to tell our pure-minded lads and lasses? Well, if not, he had best stop writing for them. How how dare he tell kids that slavery is wrong? Um, And she wasn't alone. Many libraries and many other detractors made similar complaints. Eventually, Twain had to respond in some way or another. And so he came out and he said, and I quote, I am greatly troubled by what you say. I wrote Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn for adults exclusively. And it has always distressed me when I find out boys and girls have been allowed to access them. The mind that becomes soiled in youth can never again be washed clean. I know this by my own experience. And to this day, I cherish an unappeased bitterness against the unfaithful guardians of my young life who not only permitted but compelled me to read the unexpurgated Bible through before I was 15 years old. None can do that and ever draw a clean, sweet breath again on this side of the grave. He's such a sarcastic bastard. Hey, we were talking about the Bible (laughs) earlier, right? With the gun-toning people. Yeah. Bible's pretty violent. A lot of begatting. 
<laughs> a lot of a lot of gadding. Yeah, a, lot, a lot of gats. Yeah, a lot of be, a lot of gats, be gats, a lot of slavery, um, murder, a lot sacrifice. of salt, salt wives. Yeah, salt wives, <laughs> crucifixions. I, I do like that though because it, it's in that same kind of spirit of what Lars, what you were saying before about how he was kind of covering his ass and being and making like a joke as well in the beginning with the notice of like there's no moral here of like I am astounded that children are reading this book that I wrote for adults. Right. <laughs> for another critique, although a different kind of critique, we can turn to one Papa Hemingway. To give us a more contemporary feel for this text. I never want to turn to Papa Hemingway, ever. He, he tells us of Huck Finn, it, quote, it devolves into little more than a minstrel show satire and broad comedy. If you read it, you must stop where Jim is stolen from the boys. That is the real end. The rest is just cheating. All modern American literature comes from one book by Mark Twain called Huckleberry Finn. Hmm. So good book. <laughs> stop before it ends. Ernest seems a little conflicted there. That this is the book that all Western literature stems from, but the back third of it is trash. <laughs> and even still today, people have a hard time letting kids read these books because of how they refer to Jim, or they call people engines, which people also object to. So I mean, it's it's also not great. It's not as bad as the N word, but it is also not awesome. I don't know. There's a football team you might know about this. Yeah. Um, that's another story for another day but you are not wrong <laughs> so there are like new editions of this book all the time that try to fix what people think are errors with the book some of the editions refer to jim as slave jim some just call him jim we handle it that way there are some more humorous versions such as hipster jim huh. it's the hipster version they just call him hipster jim a lot of problems with or that. given that it is now the 21st century the version modified to replace jim with a robot and thus he is robot jim and this makes sense twain loves science after all right <laughs> like it's not futuristic or sci-fi it's the exact same story except jim's just now a robot and all mentions of like slaves are replaced with robots and when i found this i thought that it was real because there is a website with an ebook and a, a book trailer that is horrifyingly sincere. Like this seems like something that someone made with complete sincerity of like, I'm going to just take race out of the picture entirely. And I was just like, oh my, oh my God. But if you click through to the, the YouTube channel, it's done by a, a comedy duo called uh, Diani and D Devine, Divine, I'm not sure how you um, pronounce it and they they made it on purpose to, to make a point about how ridiculous some of the the censorship can be i mean but it does raise you know an issue that we've dealt with before on the show where should kids read it should they read the original version you really don't want to whitewash you know and maybe take those words away i think maybe for me that's the one that i like the least like of the editing where they just take the words out we'll just ignore it as if it was never there so the thing that i kind of see happening in conversation when if they're not sort of talking about censoring or, or whichever people will ask the question whether or not they think it's still useful in a modern day classroom if they think like having to grapple with the issues with like language and stuff like that is sort of if the book is worth the trouble for like today's kids or, or whatever today's youth. yes the, the youth of today this is that's the oldest i've ever felt saying that <laughs> well now i mean it's our country is so we're so you know you have to be on the right side constantly and if you are sort of vague about things then you can get fired like professor's been fired for teaching this book right i don't know it's a controversial book but he has a mo the moral message of slavery's bad 
but the fact that there's all this language in there and stereotypes about Jim as a character makes it a problematic book. But I think all great literature has some problematic elements, but I don't know. I don't, it's like, it's it's complicated, right? It's very complicated. I, I think people stay clear of this because it could be get them in trouble for teaching. Yeah, so it's like you almost kind of run into this thing where, like you said, that it's it's almost like too daunting to try to unpack. And it's true that there is no work of classic literature that is wholly, you know, unproblematic and without any sort of fault. But yeah, like that's a daunting task to try to separate, you know, these threads that are sort of intrinsically tangled together with the language, with the fact that it is trying to espouse like a good moral and message but then that also, you know, Twain, for all of his good intentions, is writing, you know, within that time period and does fall into cliches and stereotypes. And I think that stuff is easier to kind of pick apart in, in college, in like a college classroom, when maybe you have the better, like, tools to do so. Yeah, no, it's 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 kind of like people are just like, let's let's just not, let's just sort of not bother with it. And I guess the question that I think of is, do we lose anything? By saying, you know, let's let's just kind of leave that. Because, as, as all three of us said, we all read it on our own anyway. Yeah. Like, we, we didn't even read it in a classroom setting, and we all just picked it up. <laughs> <sighs> it's complicated. I hope that people discover and love this book. Now, I don't want to get too far away from Huck Finn yet, because you didn't mention an adaptation, really, of Tom Sawyer that we mentioned not too far back. That is problematic as Huck Finn and or Tom Sawyer are... That video game out of Japan. Oh, is... see, I wasn't going to mention that because that's expli- that's explicitly based on Tom Sawyer and not The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. The characters crossover. I I don't know about this. Tell us, talk about it. Well, for for our listeners, it's it's in a Patreon bonus episode that we did. That there's a Japanese video game. So like Square Enix before they became Square Enix and they were just Square. It's Square's Tom Sawyer. It was never released in America, and it's just a it's an RPG of Tom Sawyer. <laughs> the the book and it's yeah it's weirdly adapted into an rpg and the character of jim because he is in there oh it's real bad uh so the what what is it called the avatars where it's yeah. just like the you know like the, the head like for the dialogue stuff it's on a black background and jim's head is the same color as the background so it looks like he doesn't have a face it's just two dots for eyes and a giant pair of lips and it's the it's the most horrific like caricature well they're fire engine red lip right i'm looking at this it's so bad that's i i just didn't bring it up because it's a different different book but it's really horrible Uh, japan is not known for its it's racial sensitivity in me, in their interpretations of American media. I mean, one thing I would add though, that if we were see being able to teach this book in school would tell, would show us, I believe is a better light as a country that we would be able to handle such text. The fact we still can't handle teaching such text because there are these landmines and it's maybe like, Oh, well, it's easier not to. I think that speaks louder than actually putting up with it and teaching it because like, you're still not okay with that part of history yet. There's so much. And, you know, like we said, uh, way, way back at the beginning, at the end of the day, well, you know, we want to bring it up and we want to discuss it and we want to address the complexities. We're three white people and there's only so far we can go. 
Yes. I, I have a song about it, which I would invite everyone to check out on my YouTube channel. It's called Huck Finn's On The Run. And the chorus is a bunch of kids from upstate New York, middle schoolers who sang along. But I kind of summarize it for kids and try to talk about some of the racial issues. So, you know, retelling the story is and interpreting it is the best way I think we can do. And that was my attempt to like make it politically neutral, but also like kid friendly, you know, in a way that Tom Sawyer movie is kind of kid friendly. So... Yeah, I was gonna. I was either gonna play us in in with that or play us out. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. That's tight. That's tight. That's tight. And that's you know, if you want to kind of bring it all back around, that's something that you do that I think is very cool. That you take a lot of these like literary concepts and things that would maybe make people be like, mm, this this is hard. Like, like like Moby Dick. Like Moby Dick sounds hard, and then you have this like really good song about it. Yeah, that's just really entertaining. Thank you. Yeah, you break a lot of like literary concepts down in a fun way and actually just like good to listen to enjoy enjoyable <laughs> thank you that's nice <laughs> it's sincere it's from the i heart. mean these i appreciate that and these are stories right and so the whole thing is like if you can forget you're learning a story or that it's academic or you know what's why your podcast is cool that just you both are obviously very smart and you people appreciate your sardonic take on these classics which might be kind of dry and boring and i think as fans of literature and the whole thing with transmedia like you know things being able to go off the page into real life is about imbuing it with that passion that ties in the topical and the timeless. And Huck Finn is definitely both of those things. It's timeless because it's the story of growing up and the, and the story of um, friendship, but it's topical because it's the racial pain and the problems of our country's origin. And that really reflects now with a lot of like the division and, and sadness and we have in this country. So being able to address those two things in, in any transmedia like exercise is, I think, important. Dude, that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Cause say you 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 called us smart, but that was that was real good and better than anything we were gonna come up with. Hmm. So normally this would be the part of the show where we kind of do where we we do the good and bad game, but I feel like we kind of went through that anyway. So we'll just we'll we'll skip the the formal version of it, uh, which means that that is going to do it for this episode of Ona Lit Class. Can I say one last thing? No. Yes, of course. Go ahead. I'm impressed by the research you both do and like how much you are reading and researching. And it's really, you, you both put a lot of time into this. And so it's a valuable resource. Usually when I do podcasts, people aren't as prepared. So you both really are a great team. So good job. I wanted to say that I was Thank really you. impressed by that. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm all like flustered now. <laughs> yeah, I'm for, I'm for clapped. <laughs> you're very, you both are very good at this. And I hope this, your, your podcast had great success. And I'll look forward to seeing where you go in the years to come. You know, it's, you're just getting started. Hell yeah, so. man. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> cool. Gosh. So yeah. So yeah, now, now I can't take care after that because I'm just a full of feelings now. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that'll, that'll do it for, for this episode. Uh, Lars, where can people find you? Where can people check you out? Come to your home, peep through your window at night. <laughs> um, I have a podcast. It's called MC Lars Podcast. I'm on Patreon, like you are. I have two songs a month. I do, and I'm I do like literary themed. Uh, series of songs. So I did like Narnia, the Chronicles of Narnia, and now I'm doing David Foster Wallace. So I do essays about why I wrote the songs. And every Friday I do a live stream freestyle about any topic. So yeah, at MC Lars on Twitter and (laughs) nerdcoretour.com for tour dates. So that's it. If if you like the show, leave us reviews, Uh, check us out, recommend us to your friends to your loved ones, to your most deeply hated ones, and then maybe it'll create the the blossom of friendship. You can join our Facebook group. You can follow us on Twitter, at Ona Lit Class Pod. You can listen to us everywhere, anywhere, 
nowhere, in the infinite void of nothingness, and at onolitclass.com. Thank you for including me. This has been awesome. Thank you for joining us. This was extremely cool. The next episode will be out on March 7th. Until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And I'm Lars. We love you. Bye. Bye. So it's off to Oklahoma. I'll keep heading west. I'll dream about the river and I'll dream about our quest. Jim, thanks for being a friend. To this kid from the sticks, hope to see you again. But now. Hopkins on the run. I'll be rolling on the river with my buddy through the night. Hopkins on the run. On the M I P on the Rooney to um, Ron Howard to that to a very loud train passing yeah. by our apartment. <laughs> <laughs>